I a traitor, does it occur to you? A wanted, spent, dishonest man, the lowest currency of the Cold War. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of what I'm still calling the Cinema Gadfly Podcast. Uh, each month, I'll have one guest spread over two episodes. In the first, we'll discuss a Criterion Collection film I've previously reviewed on my website, which is also called Cinema Gadfly, and you can find it at cinemagadfly.com. The second episode will be about any film my guest chose for me to watch. Uh, this month, we'll be joined by my coworker and friend, Jake Desaulnier. Say hello, Jake. Good evening. How you doing? I'm doing all right. I hope you're ready to talk about this this movie. Definitely ready to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> the film I chose for you, Jake, was 1965's Cold War spy thriller, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, starring Richard Burton, who was nominated for the Oscar, actually, for Best Actor for his role here. The film is based on a John Le Carre novel of the same name and follows Burton's Alec Lemus, who is working for an agency a lot like MI6 called The Circus. Lemus is stationed in Berlin at the start of the film, and he immediately gets an agent he's in charge of killed and is brought back to London to meet the head of his organization, whose name is Control. After a confusing conversation, he's out on the London streets looking for work at a local employment agency and ultimately ends up working at a really weird bookstore with a woman he starts a kind of a love interest thing with. But uh, the question is, what is it all really about? Has he really retired from his life spying? And the rest of the film answers those questions and a whole lot more. So I chose this film for you, Jake, because you asked to watch a spy thriller. Uh, so why don't we start off with, did you like it? How did you like it? Uh, I'd say I absolutely loved it. Took a little getting into uh, just trying to adapt my modern movie brain to the pacing, the the music or lack of music, sort of the, the style of acting, uh, what I perceived uh, to be of this era. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the end, it's just, I love a slow burn um, thriller like this. So it was, I'm glad I got to watch this one. Yeah. So one thing I thought was, was interesting was that it is a, an absolutely slow burn, you know, like the definition of that, that just building, building, building thing, but it's not a super long movie. And I think, you know, the lesson here is you, you can tell that kind of story. It doesn't require like a ridiculous running time. Like you just have to tell the story in that fashion. Uh, and I, 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 that was awesome because, you know, I watch a lot of movies. So when they're a little bit shorter, it's, uh, it's always nice. But I think you're right that the, that the films of this era are certainly, there's no question, they're slower than modern films. But uh, the, this one in particular, you, you kind of ended up with a, an interesting one for that because this film was made, well, the, the, originally the book was made in response to Ian Fleming's Bond novels. The author, John Le Carre, which was a, a pseudonym, like a nom de plume, but I can't remember his real name. He was he found the the Bond movie the Bond books really over the top ridiculous. He thought they were just absolutely disconnected from his experiences in in uh, some sort of spy agency. And he wrote uh, this book and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which was made into a movie as well, and a couple others in response to those to those Bond novels. And then the film was made after the first three Bond mo- films, also kind of as a response to the films. And I think if you compare this film with like you know, Dr. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger. It's a very different kind of film. Uh, you know, f- for one thing, Richard Burton is definitely not an, any kind of action hero in here, right? Oh, no, not at all. Uh, it's very easy to see as you watch this that he comes from a sort of theater background. And, and the the skills needed there are so different. And, like, the way that, that translates to him carrying the character uh, is uh, pretty amazing. It is. I think so, too. It's also the presentation. His presentation is very different. He's 
kind of cynical spy world weary guy but the movie itself also his none of his spy adventures are treated really almost as adventures there's no uh, glamour to this movie right like he's not he's this is not uh, a life to uh admire this is not a life to want to be in this is not any kind of superhero story he's you he wouldn't want to be this guy you wouldn't want to be going through what he's going through oh no absolutely not i mean it takes away all the glamour that you get <laughs> from all the the modern movies and even the the old bond movies and boils it down to like this is the reality of sort of the personal emotional sacrifice that you make to become part of this system to fight as a cog in a much bigger machine than you could ever understand yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit. So, one thing that I found really interesting about this particular film was, you know, it's from 1965. It's halfway into the Cold War, right? If that sort of ended in the late 80s, early 90s, started after World War II, so it's like right in the middle. And it presents a, a, a view on on communism and the Cold War that I'm not sure that anyone who's under the age of I don't know 50 now would really have any connection to i mean i don't know about i think you're a little bit older than me but i was eight in 1989 when the berlin wall fell and while i definitely remember that because i have family from germany uh i'm not sure uh, you told me i think that you weren't even the checkpoint charlie wasn't even something you really knew existed you had to like you had to look up what that was what that meant yeah i recognized the name but i had no idea what the significance was um i knew i felt like i should have known it but I didn't, so I had to look up to see, like, why is this stuck in my craw, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, there's just a lot of little bits like that throughout the film where I, I felt like maybe I should have paid a bit better uh, attention in history class. <laughs> <laughs> it's also interesting, you know, because uh, so the film, as I mentioned uh, in the in the description, uh, Burton's character falls in kind of something like love with his coworker at the bookstore, Nan who is uh, a member of the British Communist Party, right? And she's a really she really believes that communism is going to save the world, that that's the answer to to life's problems, which is really weird to think about from our modern perspective. Yeah, I, I mean as as I was w- watching the film and you know, sort of investigating the things that left questions with me after watching it, I, I mean I just sort of learned a little bit more and was surprised at how how much that was outside of my scope of knowledge about communism because i mostly thought of it as the red scare in regards to like hollywood and all that kind of stuff and bay of pigs but nothing like the individual worker uh comrades (laughs) (laughs) right we only get the kind of the, the really big stories right this is a very small story right and so the ideals of the the philosophies of of just the everyday person who was entranced by it was completely new to me and it just feels looking at it with 2015 eyes it feels completely foreign to think this is this was a thing that people were really caught up in because it it just to me i guess it just sounds a little bit wacky (laughs) (laughs) and uh, she views it like a uh, like a combination of like a point of pride but also she's a little bit like she's she's kind of defiant when she tells him but she also kind of doesn't maybe doesn't want to tell him i i don't know i mean it's there's obviously even at that time you know so I mean, this is uh, what is it uh, over ten years after like the McCarthy hearings, and of course that was in the U.S., not in England. But it's she's just very passionate about it. She doesn't. It's I don't know. It just blew my mind. It really did. Yeah, the fact that she's so idealistic and sort of I don't know naive and compared to 
uh, Lemus's character. I mean, just that contrast uh, really played well uh, off of each other. The back and forth of of her idealism and his sort of grim outlook on life. <laughs> he has a. I mean, he has a grim, grim outlook on life. Did you think so? You know, he spends a lot of the first part of the movie drunk, right? Is it, it? Do you think he was an alcoholic? Like, is he? Yep. Is is that? Is he just you know playing a part? Is 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 he? Is his character really? You know, is Alec Lemus really just a just a drunk? So when I watched this, and I and you know he had that conversation with Control after he you know came back from Berlin to London and you know sort of the namesake. Uh, talked about him staying out in the cold. So ah, they said the name of the movie. It was so awesome. Yeah. It's like that, you know, uh, Family Guy episode. Like, what? <laughs> they said it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, okay, that's a call out, I guess. And and I thought, okay, well, this definitely means I should start thinking about what he's doing as not being totally above board. But it was very hard for me to tell uh, watching it, you know, for the first time and saying what part of this is the act and what part of this is just disgruntled old man really just sort of thrown out <laughs> by the wayside. It was really hard to, to, to get that until later in the movie when I started to be able to put the clues together, like what was him and what was the act. And, and I thought that was pretty interesting that I kind of felt a bit like a dummy at, at the beginning because I'm just like, wow, that was bad. Who would you, why would you, and then later to be like, oh, that had a point. I get it now. Yeah, I think the film does, a, a to my mind, a really good job of bringing everything together. But, you know, in that slow burn style that we mentioned, just kind of building things sort of piece by piece. And there were definitely moments uh, early on where I, I was confused. You know, it's, it's what, it, what exactly is going on. And the film doesn't really explain a lot. You know, it just kind of does what it's going to do. And then it trusts that if you stick with it it everything will eventually make sense right so because it's the it's the type of movie where all of those realizations are kind of the point of watching it i want you know we're we're even more more than in the previous episodes trying to shy away from any kind of spoilers i want you all to to want to go watch this film it's it's a wonderful film but it suffice it to say you know all is not as it seems and and there are a lot of sort of like any good spy caper you know sort of webs within webs within webs and I think that those are those are presented really, really well. You know, I, I certainly did not uh, see where anything was going until it happened. Yeah, I mean, the one that I'd say confounded me the most was uh, his relationship, uh, Lemus's relationship with Nan. I wasn't sure where he fell on, like, part of the act or an awakening of the heart or anything of that nature. It was very hard to, to tell for me a long way into the movie whether or not this was this was a thing that he was really struggling with or not yeah because uh, he, he kind of i mean he meets this 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 woman at the at his job that he gets through the employment agency at this at this yeah and i, I really thought it, the whole employment exchange was really interesting that you'd sort of show up with a book of skills like your little flip book of resume of here's what i'm good at and just be like yeah you look like you could sort books <laughs> It's like <laughs> absolutely, and it was also men only. Did you notice that? Uh, now that you say that, yeah, I hadn't consciously paid attention to that, but yeah, it was just men only in the uh, employment exchange. Yeah, 
So, but yeah, I mean, it's like, where else is he going to end up? Because he didn't like his previous jobs and things like that. It's a, that's a weird, uh, that's a, it's, you know, it's part of this bleak idea of, of the London of this film and, and just in general bleak. You know, the film is certainly bleak in terms of its outlook and in terms of its, uh, as we said, not really fitting into that glamour thing of James Bond. But it's also just an unbelievably beautiful film. I thought the opening in particular is just incredible. You know, it's it that that there's that shot early on where the, the men are looking for this agent that Lemus is running in, in East Germany to come and Burton is facing away from us for like quite a long time and when he and when he turns around it just kind of makes the whole scene kind of matter and, and make sense. I just thought it was incredible. And it's a it's a black and white film, as you mentioned, and it, they do just the most amazing job with the contrast. It's it's like painting. It's beautiful. Yeah, I mean the cinematography I thought was amazing and there's so many times where i just wish i could take a still frame and like print it out and hang it up someplace it was just great contrasts and i mean that's another thing i did get the benefit of watching this uh as a criterion blu-ray and i had um been told about this movie in the past and so i also own it as an uh sort of an itunes thing and so after watching the blu-ray i did look at the itunes and I could see all of the scratches and the marks and all that kind of stuff that were removed. So it was just a sort of a testament to watching the Criterion Edition, like how much work has gone in to just restore it to the best quality it could possibly be, uh, which really just showed through when I got to watch it. Yeah, the idea behind the Criterion Collection is sort of interesting because they, they, they don't want to... They want to make it, as you said, the highest quality they possibly can, but at the same time, they don't want to go beyond the... Uh, abilities of the of people at the time the movie was made so they don't want it to look they want what their goal is to make it look like you would be sitting in the theater at a really good theater on opening day of the movie you're watching but not like you know like the way that george lucas went back and, and made star wars cgi better than he could have done in the 70s like they don't do that kind of thing they they really want to preserve the the feeling of the 35 millimeter film and the grain and and the colors and just try to get as close to what that experience would have been like for you which i think in a film like this, it makes a huge difference. I mean, it really changes the, the tone of the film and, and, and really kind of pulls you in. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine what this would look like if it had been shot in color. Like, the mood is drawn so much from the fact that it's black and white that it it seems impossible that you could make the same impact without doing it in black and white. Yeah, I don't think it would work anywhere near as well. I think it would be... I mean, it, you know, it'd be a, it'd be could be a good movie. It'd be a very different movie. Have you seen uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the more recent adaptation? I have not seen that. Um, I'd heard mixed reviews from people. I'd always wanted to see it because it seemed like my cup of tea, but I just never got around to it because the mixed reviews just didn't keep it from bumping up on my queue. I'm going to pile onto the mixed reviews. I, I I was not a huge fan, and actually, the person that I watched it that I watched it with. We eventually watched this film together, and and then he kind of was like, yeah, I kind of see now why you didn't really like the other one. Yeah, I mean, the most recent sort of spy thriller that I really enjoyed was actually a six-part miniseries on uh, BBC America called The Game. I haven't heard of that. And it's, like, set in London. It's set in London in, like, 1972, and it's Cold War, some of the same themes you see here. I mean, and it's been, like, color-graded to the point where... It's very few colors, and it works really well. Yeah, I'm, I'm very leery of which spy things I watch because I want them to be really good, but I know that there's like a, 
spectrum and there's the bonds and the Jason Bournes at one end and then there's uh, this kind of movie at the other end and I'm leery of all the stuff in the middle <laughs> <laughs> I, that, that seems fair to me you know it's like I don't mind a great superhero movie but I wanted to know that that's what it is I think I, I've always said personally that I, I don't mind a movie that's about nothing as long as it doesn't pretend to be about something right so you know if a movie looks like it wants to have a greater message but then it completely fails at that then that's when I'm that's when I'm angry at the at the film something like you know, we, we you and I just watched uh, uh, Rogue Nation, right? The new uh, the new the new Mission Impossible film, and that didn't want to be about anything, and it was wonderful. It was so fun. Oh yeah, I mean, it, you got the popcorn movie you expected when you walked in the door, and so that was uh, exactly what it needed to be. And this is exactly what it needs to be, sort of more on the art film side of it. And and I just think the the actors that they got to play the main roles were really fed off of each other um, I thought for the most part I was a little nervous at first because I just thought it seems silly that this guy would be standing at this checkpoint just watching people come across like the other side's not thinking suspicious we should take extra care about who comes across tonight they're looking at us well especially because it's one guy that comes across yeah right like they know who this they know who he is right Lemus is like they know they have to know who he is. He's been there for quite a while, and he's running, you know. The, the I mean, every side knows who each other are, right? So I don't, yeah, I thought so too. That was the one thing in the film maybe that I was a little bit skeptical of. It's like, how did this this guy, and we're not spoiling anything. This is in the first, you know, minute of the film. How, how did this guy on this bicycle think he was going to get across? Like, what was his, that was his plan? It's not a very good plan. Yeah, it seemed like a very poor plan, and it had to open somehow, and I assume that it's, Realistic, uh, because um, uh, Lacar, Lacare, I don't know. He actually bef- before he started writing all these novels, he was actually in the Secret Service, and these stories are like based on things he knew, or, or, you know. So there's a certain amount of accuracy there that says this probably happened to some extent, but it just seems so crazy that anybody would think it would ever work. Oh yeah, I mean it makes for a great scene, right? It's so beautiful, but it's just ludicrous I, don't, I just can't imagine in what in what by the way did you notice this was something random just a, a thing that i noticed in this part of the movie he put i think i believe he put scotch in his coffee <laughs> i did i noticed that and later it became apparent that that was just the thing that he put in everything yeah well he just i mean he clearly really likes scotch but it was that's gross <laughs> yeah that's why it was really i mean it was great because at the opening scene he's like scotch in my coffee and later you see him scotch with everything, and you're like, maybe he's just a drunk. I don't know. This may not be an act. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's completely possible that he was both, you know, doing his job as a spy and also just a drunk. I would imagine that you would almost have to be a drunk to, in order to live with the kind of things that he was, you know, living with. This is not. He doesn't. He doesn't have a a, a, a James Bond style you know, compartmentalization in the same way of, like, the things that are happening. You know, people are dying, and he... On the one hand, he does seem to be able to divorce himself from the reality of the things that are happening around him, but at the same time, it's so visible that he is really affected and scarred by the things that are happening to him and the the actions of those around him. I mean, he's not a he's not a happy guy. Yeah, I mean, there's a great line later uh, in the film where he sort of belittles 
spies in general. And there's a great little bit of dialogue in the contrast again to Nan always being like optimistic and idealistic and him just being angry that she doesn't even see that the world is this horrible, horrible place that he sees. What was the line you were thinking of? Um, what the hell do you think spies are? They're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me, little men, drunkards, queers, henpecked husbands, civil servants playing cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten little lives. And just the de- the delivery that he gave was so like, I hate myself and this is what I am, that it was it was just, it was really great. It was one of the scenes that really like stood out to me uh, in the latter half where he was, I think, struggling more with the duality of the lifelong seasoned spy and sort of this like desire to metaphorically come in from the cold and maybe understand what it's like to be a regular human again instead of this world that he's chosen for himself so just that sort of that bitter look in the mirror self-assessment it it really stood out that's that's really well said i it's it's so interesting because that you picked that uh, it was great dialogue but i you know in talking about what i was just saying about the sort of dichotomy between uh, Lemus, the very world weary, honest, sad kind of you know almost just depressed civil servant. Then you've got the kind of quippy, leaning towards the bond side of things like that kind of because I think that you know that stuff came, comes from these people's real experience too. These people you know think they're you know they got to be so cool all the time. So one of the lines he's questioned when he at one point about his relationship with with this Nan, this communist uh, coworker of his, and he says. She was a communist too. She believed in free love. At the time, it was all I could afford. Which is oh yeah, that was so good. <laughs> which is such a great line. Yeah. But that's you know that's the other half of that where he's being very quippy and very kind of whatever. I don't care about anybody, and it's all good with me. You know that kind of thing. And he 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 wandered between those two people effortlessly and really interestingly. I thought throughout the entire course of the film, where it's you're never quite. Uh, sure who the real him is and i think at the end of the day the real him is 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 all of it oh definitely and 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 i thought the the interaction between fiedler and lemus um they just played off of each other so well there was like professional admiration it was just great and i felt like there was a lot of scenes where they their dialogue went back and forth and it was quippy and heartfelt and angry and it just felt like this is the way it would have really gone down. Yeah, so there you're talking about the uh, his sort of counter person on the other side. In terms of him being an, an alcoholic or not being an alcoholic, do you remember early in the film his 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 boss says, "Would you like a drink?" and he says, "I'll wait." And the boss says, "Can you still do that?" <laughs> I, I missed that. I don't I don't remember that. It's so great. It's like I, it sets it up kind of perfectly. It puts it right on that line that that you know that he was walking. There's so many, it, you know, it's one of those films where there's just, uh, I've, you know, you've seen it once, right? I've seen it twice. You've seen it twice? All right. I've seen it a few more times than that. And uh, and it was one of those films where I kind of get a little more out of it almost every, pretty much every time I watch it. Oh, definitely. So, you know, like a crazy person, you gave this to me and I watched it and I took it in sort of with the fresh eyes. Like a lot of it felt a little weird or stiff, didn't have much intro to what a movie from this time would feel like 
which I wanted to go look up later. Like, what else was coming out in this time period? Like, is this normal or is this the oddball movie? And then I thought, you know, watching some of the supplemental stuff and, and hearing Lacar talk about his life before this, I thought, well, he wrote this book in like five weeks. That's pretty amazing. So then I made myself go read the book. <laughs> Did it take you five weeks to read the book? Uh, no, it was a very short book. It only took me half a day or so. But it was very interesting. Um, he had made a comment during his interview about how the movie was like very faithful to the book, and he was on set quite a bit. Uh, turns out that uh, the director of the movie and Richard Burton, who plays Lemus, do not get along. Oh, I didn't know that. So he was all actually on set quite a bit rewriting all of Richard Burton's lines because he d- did not accept the original screenplay writer. And he had he had a great quote saying that they did an almost too faithful of a job converting the book to a movie, and he called it turning a cow into a bouillon cube. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, and so then I watched this film a second time because the kind of person I am and I could just sort of compare and contrast and obviously as anybody who reads a book you're like oh I wish they'd left this in but I really have to agree with that sentiment it's like they distilled it down like nothing too major was missing that would have changed the tone or the the characters uh, so I, I thought it was really really well done and I assume that I will continue to watch this every so often and find more and more new things and just really love it. Um, there's so many little nuances and the way they cut their eyes or something of that nature. And you're just like, wow, that that's told so many different emotions in less than a second. Very well said. All right. Well, um, I think with that, we can probably start to, to wrap this thing up. Uh, did you have any other thoughts you wanted to get in before we, before we kind of say goodnight? No. Um, I mean, I could probably go on for hours talking about that, but that would not be a very interesting podcast. So, <laughs> um, I'll write a research report instead. <laughs> that that sounds great. I, I promise to not ever read it. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you want to know one random thing that I noticed that it's super not relevant to anything we've been talking about? But I don't even remember when in this in the film this is exactly. But someone, I think I was actually his boss at the beginning. He opens an envelope with a butter knife. And I just thought to myself, wow, that's really gross. There's butter all over that. Oh, I do remember that scene. I didn't notice it was a butter knife. I just thought, for opening something with a knife, you really tore up that envelope. Yeah, because I think it was a butter knife. It's not... That makes sense. Now it makes more sense. (laughs) Well, on that incredibly random note, uh, this is a film I absolutely love. I've, Like I said, I've seen it many, many times, and I could talk about it pretty much forever. But I think we'll... We'll leave it there with this one. I heartily recommend that you all uh, go out and, and check it out. It can be found in all kinds of different locations, and some of them will be in the, the notes, undoubtedly, for this podcast when it comes out. Uh, Jake, I'm really looking forward to our next episode. I'm not going to say what the film you chose for me is, but uh, I am, I'm intrigued, and I'm, I look forward to, to, to checking it out and then uh, talking to you about it. Yeah, I'm looking forward as well. It's like a clone of this movie. <laughs> all right, that's, a, that's an interesting claim. Uh, so, um, we'll see you all back here, uh, for the next episode of the podcast. And thanks everybody for listening. Uh, Jake, did do you want to let people know where they can find you on the, on the interwebs? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Desonier, uh, spelled with a Mickey Mouse song, D-E-S-A-U-L-N-I-E-R-S. Ooh, 
Very nice. And uh, uh, listeners, you can find me at Cinema Gadfly on Twitter, cinemagadfly.com. And uh, thank you all for listening. All right. Good night. What the hell do you think spies are? Moral philosophers measuring everything they do against the word of God or Karl Marx? They're not. They're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me. Little men, drunkards, queers, henpecked husbands, civil servants playing cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten little lives. Do you think they sit like monks in a cell balancing right against wrong? Yo, man. The movie uh, Spy Came In From The Cold or whatever, that's that Ray Romano joint where he's that woolly mammoth and he's looking for nuts or something. My kid fucking loves that movie. Taste.